All right. Good afternoon, everyone. I hope everyone's enjoying their second day at Pain Week 2018. We're going to go ahead and get started here in a second. Uh, before I did, just want to do a few housekeeping notes. Um, if you have a cell phone, please put that to silent or vibrate now so that we're not um, experiencing any distractions during the talk. And then if you are a psychologist and you are going to be claiming credit for this talk, you'll want to sign out at the yellow sheet located at the back near the water coolers. All right, and with that, I'm uh, pleased to introduce uh, Jessica Geiger-Hayes, who will be doing a talk on relax, all antispasmodics are the same, right? Hi, hi everybody. <laughs> um, so I just want to thank you guys all for coming, um, coming to this presentation today. Um, and I just wanted to give a little bit of background for why I decided that this is something we should talk about. And it comes from seeing, seeing people use muscle relaxers, antispasmodics, whatever you want to call them, um, and maybe not in the most appropriate way, or maybe because that's just what they were taught and they didn't truly understand the properties of the medication. And so I've noticed this in my practice and I thought, huh, Maybe, maybe we all need a little bit of a refresher on these medications and where their place in therapy is and which one is the best one to use um, depending on our patient. So with that being said, I have no disclosures to make. I just, I, that's it, none. Um, oh, and the other thing, thing I'll say is if you guys have questions, I am happy to answer them, but if you could hold them off until the end, uh, that would be much appreciated because they are recording these sessions. So if we can capture all of those at the end, that would be great. So we have a few objectives. Um, we're going to look at the pharmacokinetic profile of each of, of these classes of medications or the different types of muscle relaxers um, or antispasmodics. And this is, you know, my favorite thing because I'm a pharmacist. So this stuff gets me really excited. Um, we're going to talk about selecting the different medications um, and then looking at a couple of cases at the end, maybe trying to match up what we've talked about with a patient to apply some of this. The first thing I want to do is differentiate between spasticity and a spasm because I think they get confused sometimes. It might just be me, um, but so spasticity has to do with a neurological condition that is upper motor neuron syndrome. So um, think cerebral palsy, things like that, where there is a spasticity component to a disease state that we want to control. I'm not going to talk about that much today. I'm going to touch on it just a bit because there's a couple of medications that kind of cross over into treating spasticity as well as being muscle relaxers. What I want to focus on are um, spasms, so medications that are going to treat muscle spasms, and those are peripheral musculoskeletal conditions. So there are you know, this medication class divides into two, and it, it is into um, antispastic agents. So baclofen, tizanidine, dantrolene is actually an antispastic agent. Um, I know a lot of people are mostly familiar with that one for um, terrible reactions to anesthesia, but it actually is a central, 
central antispastic agent. Um, and we're going to talk about also antispasmodics. So they, like I said before, antispastic agents are for neurologic conditions, um, cerebral palsy, multiple sclerosis, those types of disease states, and then antispasmodics are more for musculoskeletal conditions. We commonly see antispasmodic medica medications used to treat low back pain. I think that's where I most commonly see it used is for low back pain, neck pain, fibromyalgia, tension headaches, because there can be definitely a um, muscle tightening component to those, and then some myofascial pain syndromes. I can't get too far into this without talking a little bit about what's in the literature, right? For the most part, some generalizations that I could make um, were that there was some conflicting information. Um, some of the literature that I looked at didn't have the best design, so I don't know that we could take a whole lot. I mean, we can take some things from those, but not a lot. Um, and it didn't tell me a whole lot. What I've learned is that we've, we've kind of used these and we don't have a whole lot of information behind it. Not to say we shouldn't use them, but it's just not a lot out there. So what I did find was um, muscle relaxers are better than placebo, which I would hope that they would be better than placebo, but not better than non-steroidal anti-inflammatories when used them by themselves. Um, cyclobenzaprine is also better than a placebo, but as you'll find out here shortly, um, it is inferior to antidepressants. In some studies, they didn't find a difference between metaxalone and a placebo, so that's kind of a little bit, like, kind of like, oh, then why are, we, why are we using it? But sometimes people say that it works and we have to believe them. Um, and then there's some evidence that supports some other medications um, specifically for low back pain. Um, the other thing that is out there is that tizanidine and baclofen um, are roughly equivalent for spasticity. So when you're thinking about those two medications, if you're going to do, treat spasticity with them, um, looking at the side effect profile is going to be huge because that may guide which one you choose if you're going to choose those. Um, and a lot of this literature comes from um, Amer the American Pain Society, and then there was a meta-analysis that was done looking at treatment for fibromyalgia, and that's where the cyclobenzaprine information came from. So let's jump right in. So our first medication. Actually, I do have a, I have a question. If I said muscle relaxer, which, what's the first one that pops into your head? Well, I heard one person say Soma really enthusiastically, but for the most part, I heard <laughs> other people saying Flexeril or Cyclobenzaprine, right? For some reason, that's the first one we jumped to. Um, and so I started with that because I wanted to highlight some things about this medication that some people may not be aware of. Um, and if you are aware of it, I'm so happy. Um, so some clinical information. Works at the brainstem um, within the central nervous system. It does decrease some somatic motor activity and it influences alpha and gamma motor neurons. So those motor neurons affect how muscles contract. It is very similar in structure to amitriptyline. Super similar in structure to amitriptyline. Um, the dosing is, can be seen there, but there are, is some literature out there that says the five milligram dose is as effective as a 10 milligram dose, but you get less side effects with the five milligram dose. 
So how many of you have seen people started right away on 10 milligrams three times a day? All the time, right? We probably don't need to be starting that high, um, but that's just, it just is kind of what is happening. Um, it's available in five and 10 milligram tablets. It takes about an hour to really start to work, but um, the peak effect isn't seen until after about four hours for this medication. Um, it was brought to market in 1977. And it's not the oldest muscle relaxer. Um, so, some clinical pearls. You have to be cautious if someone has hepatic impairment, and this is because it is metabolized hepatically. So if someone has hepatic impairment, you can see increased concentrations in the bloodstream, and which could lead to more side effects. Um, there is a potential for serotonin syndrome when it's given in combination with other medications that also affect serotonin. There are some contraindications, so heart block and cardiac conduction issues, and that comes from how similar it is to amitriptyline, and that's always something we're thinking about. If we're gonna start someone on a tricyclic antidepressant, you're, you're, one of the first questions is, what's their heart history because we don't want to cause more problems. So it can, um, there's a potential for arrhythmias. So we wanna make sure we're avoiding using cyclobenzaprine in patients that have heart block or other cardiac conduction issues. And the um, use past two to three weeks lacks efficacy. How many of you see people that have been on cyclobenzaprine for years? Yeah. Another thing that is one of my pet peeves, we shouldn't be using these for years. These should be short-term courses. So the other big thing when we are thinking about cyclobenzaprine is there is a lot of anticholinergic side effects that can happen with this medication. So we're thinking drowsiness, dry mouth, urinary retention, increased intraocular pressure. So if our patient also has glaucoma, we should probably avoid cyclobenzaprine. It is one of the most studied of the muscle relaxers. Um, it does have a long half-life as well. So a range, there's a range out there in the, of, in the data of eight to 18 hours. So if someone, you see someone having a lot of side effects or becoming very drowsy, you be aware that that medication's gonna stick around for a little while. So it's important to educate the patients. If we're gonna start them on this medication and you get very drowsy, you could be drowsy for a while. I can share, I personally was put on this once. I took my five milligram dose and I joke with everybody that I talk to that you could have probably performed a minor procedure on me without me waking up because it was just for me that sedating of a medication. And I just, I, went, I luckily took it at night. So I just went to bed and woke up the next morning, but, but I was out for the count. And my family was like, yeah, we tried to wake you up and you just started talking gibberish. So we just left you alone. Like, All right, at least you guys are checking on me. Um, the other important thing is it's not meant to be used by itself. It's supposed to be an adjunct to other therapies, including rest and physical therapy or add an NSAID. So that's our little clinical pearls on cyclobenzaprine. I also wanted to throw in a little audience participation. So which one's cyclobenzaprine and which one's amitriptyline? So we'll say on your guys' so which one what do you how many of you guys think it's the one on the left? And how many think it's the one on the right? How many just don't know? And that's okay too. Um, so if I can get this to act right, it's actually the one on the left is cyclobenzaprine. 
Isn't that amazing how similar it is to amitriptyline? It blew my mind the first time I saw this picture, so that's why I had to share this with everybody back in medicinal chemistry in pharmacy school. Um, so if we're thinking about it, these things have a very similar structure, and we can get some added benefit from amitriptyline of potentially treating depression if we need to, neuropathic pain, lots of other um, indicated uses for amitriptyline. So sometimes my thought is, why don't we just try to use amitriptyline instead if we need to do other things and get more bang for a buck out of the medication? It also makes me wonder, does cyclobenzaprine affect neuropathic pain? And maybe it does because look how similar these structures are. So it's things that I hope... Um, make you guys start to ask questions and think about uh, when, you're, when we're using the medications. I could probably just talk about this medication for a really long time, but I'm going to try to not do that. Um, so let's move on to the next one, methocarbamol. So some clinical information about methocarbamol. It works by just basically general CNS depression. So it makes me wonder, are we actually treating muscle spasms or are we just allowing somebody to get some rest? I don't know. Um, it is a derivative of guaifenesin, which is also kind of interesting. Um, there's some dosing information there for you guys, and I think all of these slides should also be on the app, so you should have access to them. Um, there's, again, other information about how it comes, 500 milligram and 750 milligram tablets. It also is available as an injectable. Um, there are some cautions that we're going to talk about with that. It only takes about 30 minutes for this to start to work, and this one is older. It was brought to the market in 1960s. So here is where I want to talk a little bit more about, um, about this one. So you have to be cautious in patients that have a seizure disorder because there's a potential that the seizure threshold can be lowered with this medication. Um, you should never use the injectable formulation in patients with renal impairment, and that's because the injectable formulation has uh, polyethylene glycol in it. So if patients cannot eliminate that, we have the potential for polyethylene glycol toxicity. That's a whole other ball of wax that we don't even want to have to mess with if we're going to use this. Um, there is the potential for this to also be, though, less drowsy. So if drowsiness is a concern, you may want to consider the oral formulation of this. Um, there is the potential that it can exacerbate myasthenia gravis, so understanding the other disease states that are happening for your patient is important. Um, and along with some of the other muscle relaxers that we're going to talk about, when combined with other CNS depressants, the ones that have CNS depression as their main mechanism of action, as methocarbamol does, um, there is always a potential for respiratory depression if you're going to add other CNS depressants. So if we're adding an opioid, if we're adding a benzodiazepine, just being cautious in that. This medication can also potentially increase the level of opioids, SSRIs, and other CNS depressants. So there's some drug-drug interactions that could happen here that we need to be careful of. Um, and the half-life of this is short, though, so that's nice. It's only one to two hours. So if you need something for a patient that's going to be quick to start working and quick to be eliminated, this might be the medication that you want to use. Another pop quiz. I like, I like to include pictures. So um, who thinks that methocarb, which one do you guys think methocarbamol is? Anyone want to just shout out a guess? The right. Yes, it is the one on the right. So 
I still think it's interesting to look at this stuff and see how similar they are to each other. And it makes you wonder how, um, you know, what, what made someone think, huh, let's just add a group to this molecule and maybe it'll give us some other, I mean, I just find that stuff interesting. It's going to give us a different mechanism of action and help do other things. Um, so moving on, carisoprodol. This one has an unclear mechanism of action, um, but there are um, thoughts that it is also a CNS depressant, and the active metabolite, which is meprobamate, can help with anxiety and is also a little bit sedative. So it's thinking about this one, we have a drug, and then we also have an active metabolite of the drug. Um, again, with any of these muscle relaxers, short-term courses of therapy, so maximum of two to three weeks for most of these, um, save baclofen. You can see people on baclofen and the antispasticity agents for longer durations of time, but again, that's because of their underlying neurological diseases. Um, this one only comes in a 350 milligram tablet, and this one has an onset of 30 minutes, again, with a peak response happening after about four hours. This one was brought to market in 1959. So there is the potential for dependence with this medication. So if you have a patient that has a history of drug or alcohol abuse or substance use disorder, any sort of, um, you know, they have cravings or those types of things that you have to worry about, this might not be the medication because it can, it can cause dependence. And it also requires it's tapered slowly after prolonged use. So if you need to get somebody off this medication quickly, you won't be able to because there can be some withdrawal symptoms. Um, there are some post-market reports of seizures with this one, um, and it does have hepatic metabolism. So the half-life of the, the parent drug is two hours, but the half-life of meprobamate is 12. So it's also going to stick around in the system a little bit longer. So if you don't want something that's going to hang around that long, you may want to think about a different medication that's not going to hang around so long. And I have more pictures, so we have carisoprodol and meprobamate up here, and um, the one that's still up is carisoprodol, and then that is what it is metabolized into um, in the liver. So then let's move on to orphenadrine. This one is, again, another one that we don't know for sure, the, the mechanism of action, but there's some potential ideas. Um, so just some potentially some analgesic properties um, and some euphoria. So it also has some anticholinergic effects, so there could be some indirect skeletal muscle relaxation that happens via that route. It's very similar to diphenhydramine, so what is one thing that you might want to be considered considering right away if it's similar to diphenhydramine? sedation. It can be really sedating because, because of the um, anticholinergic side effects. Um, it is injectable and it takes about an hour to start working. It was brought to market in the 1940s, so it's been around for quite some time um, compared to the other medications that we're talking about. So if I... We're gonna, I'm going to have to ask you to wait until the end for questions just because of the, the uh, recording and stuff, but I will answer questions at the end, I promise. Um, 
and I'm speaking all of these medications, I'm talking about generic names. I don't, I'm not um, referring to any of them by their trade name. There's a lot of trade names that some of them go by, so I talk about the generic names when I'm talking about them. Um, again, caution in patients with tachycardia or arrhythmias. Uh, because of the anticholinergic side effects, you need to be careful in myasthenia gravis and glaucoma. Um, and it has the potential to be very sedating uh, because of, of the chemical structure and how it interacts. So the other thing to think about with this medication is it can decrease the effectiveness of some other medications. Um, chlorpromazine can be affected as well as promethazine. So if someone, and I would hope that you maybe wouldn't combine these medications anyway, because there would be the potential for a lot of sedation if you added, um, added them together. It has a long half-life of about 14 to 16 hours. So again, it's going to stick around for a little bit. And as I could find them, I always included pictures of the chemical structure. So really similar here between um, this orphanodrine and diphenhydramine. So that's orphanodrine, and then the other one was diphenhydramine, and you can see it's just uh, basically a single bond difference between the two medications. I'm going to talk about baclofen briefly, and I, when I'm talking about baclofen today, it's, I'm going to talk about the oral baclofen. I don't want to try to get into baclofen infusions and implanted pumps um, because that's a different topic. But I see baclofen used a lot for low back pain. And I also see it used a lot orally for other neurologic conditions. But I just wanted to make sure we talked about it because it has some unique, unique properties. So um, it acts on upper motor neurons that cause muscle relaxation. And it's also a general CNS depressant. What I found really cool about it is it's a derivative of the GABA neurotransmitter. And what we know about the GABA neurotransmitter is that it's inhibitory and it affects motor control and it also affects anxiety. So we have a medication that someone can take that interacts similar to um, a neurotransmitter that happens in our body and potentially we could get some muscle relaxation out of it and maybe some anxiety um, relief. So there's some starting dosing recommendations there and there is a maximum daily dose of about 80 milligrams a day. Um, it takes a couple of days for this to really start working. It's not something that is going to start right away. So it would be important for patients to understand you may not feel the effect of this medication after the first dose. Please don't stop taking it. Continue because it's going to start working better as you continue to take it. And it's, it's fairly new. Brought to market in 1992. Um, there is a black box warning attached to this medication, though. So um, you can't abruptly discontinue it. You want to use a slow taper. Um, the dose reduction is recommended and re will actually required if you have a creatinine clearance less than 80, and that's because of renal elimination. We don't want this medication to accumulate um, in someone. Um, there is a potential for acute urinary retention. It usually resolves. Um, and you want to be cautious in patients with GI disorders because it does affect... Um, the motor neurons, if someone has GI dysmotility or slow GI, you may affect that even further. So you want to make sure that we're aware of other things that might be going on um, and that we don't make them worse by adding a medication like baclofen.
the half-life of baclofen is about four hours. So again, it's going to be quick to be eliminated from the body should you need to discontinue that on someone. So I have just a few more to talk through. Um, tizanidine is our next one. And this one is, is unique because it actually is an alpha-2 adrenergic agonist. What is that similar to? I mean, the, the answer's up there, but... Low blood pressure medications, right? So it makes sense that why we can use some of our other low blood pressure, or not low blood pressure, I should not say that, our antihypertensive medications. Um, why you can sometimes see other antihypertensives like clonidine used for pain management. Um, so very similar to clonidine, and you start at very low doses. It comes in two milligram and four milligram tablets, and it takes about one to two hours to start to work. Um, and this one is another fairly new one. It was brought to market in 1996. Now, of course, one of the things that we should automatically be thinking of is if it is similar to other antihypertensives, we need to be aware of the potential for causing hypotension as a side effect. So if someone already has low blood pressure or they're on other blood pressure medications, we'd want to monitor them a little bit closely because we don't want to cause their blood pressure to go too low and cause the side effects associated with that. Um, there is a dose reduction that's needed if they have a creatinine clearance less than 25 milliliters per minute, as well as hepatic impairment. It should never be used with ciprofloxacin or fluvoxamine, and that's because these are both potent inhibitors of CYP1A2, and that is the hepatic enzyme that metabolizes this medication. So if we are inhibiting the metabolism of tizanidine, we have the potential that it is going to accumulate in the body. Patients that are also on oral contraceptives may see that tizanidine doesn't work as well for them. So there's some drug-drug interactions. You don't necessarily have to memorize all of the drug-drug interactions, but um, remembering that some of these medications should flag you to either run an interaction checker yourself or tap in a colleague and help, you know, check someone's medication list before these medications are started um, would be important, especially with this one, because we don't want to cause drug-drug interactions or have um, our serum concentrations messed up. Um, and then the, the half-life is about two and a half hours. So again, the shorter acting one of the muscle relaxers. So it, it might be a good choice if you don't want something to stick around for too long. There is recommended that a taper be done if someone's going to be stopped, if the, or for not if, when the medication is stopped, because we want to see people on short-term courses of these medications. And then again, so tizanidine here is on your left, clonidine is on the right. So it's just the difference of that ring there at the bottom right, um, the difference in the structure of those two medications. Metaxalone is um, yet another option for muscle relaxer. Um, again, another one that the precise mechanism hasn't been established. Um, general depression of the nervous system is possible. There is not really another medication that has a similar structure, and um, this one is dosed 800 milligrams three to four times a day. It takes about three hours for it to start to work, and then in, the, in the, the aging of our muscle relaxers, this is one of the older ones. Something interesting about this one is that 
they've noticed that for female patients, there is an increased bioavailability and half-life. So um, you may see female patients maybe having more side effects if there's more of the drug available in their body. Or they may say that it works better for them. And then you have male patients that come and say, I don't really see that this is working for me. Um, I couldn't find out a lot about the why, but just that it's, it's out there saying that there is increased bioavailability and potentially increased half-life in female patients. You don't really have to adjust the dose of this medication if you have renal or hepatic impairment, so that's a plus. Um, and food can affect the serum concentrations. So if someone takes this on an empty stomach, not as much of the drug is going to be absorbed as if they take it with food, which is another little caveat to keep in mind. There's also been reported less dizziness and drowsiness with this medication. Um, it also has the potential for serotonin syndrome, so keep that in mind, not necessarily by itself, but if you're going to give it with other medications that affect serotonin. And this is another one that can potentially increase the serum concentrations of opioids and other CNS depressants. So if you are adding it to a regimen, you may want to watch them closely. I don't know that it means you have to automatically decrease the dose of those other medications, but be aware that the serum concentrations could increase so we could see more side effects. This one has a long half-life. It's about nine hours. So it's going to stick around for a little while. And then the last class of medications I want to talk about is just benzodiazepines as a whole, because I see them used as skeletal muscle relaxants. And, and it's appropriate. They, they can be used as skeletal muscle relaxants, but I didn't want to get into the nitty gritty of each one of them. I just wanted to touch on them as a class. So um, they act on the GABA receptors. Um, cause skeletal muscle relaxation. The dosing is medication dependent. As you can see up there, everything is medication dependent. So you would, we would have to look up each one of the medications. Um, but I did want to share that it is recommended that they're tapered if someone is on these chronically. Everybody here probably already knows that. Um, and the comparison of the half-life. So clonazepam is the longest half-life all the way down to alprazolam in the list that I have here. Midazolam is actually the shortest, but I don't generally see that used um, it for antispasmodic purposes. And they're all sedating. So those are good things to keep in mind. And I wanted to also include this. So I included a chart for you guys um, about dose comparisons, um, equivalent dosing, um, half-life onset, and then active metabolites, and then different comments. So when, you know, what you should avoid them in and, and when, when they might be the best to use. And that is all in your slides. And I just, we have about 20 minutes, and so I have a couple cases. So I don't mean to rush through this, but I want you to know it's in the slides um, as a reference for you to use. So I wanted to have time to get to two cases um, that I'm hoping that we can discuss. So our first case is um, a 44-year-old female automobile accident. Um, she works full-time. She wants to be able to continue doing that. So we have some goal setting there. Um, and she doesn't want her medications to interfere with her life so much that she can't function. Um, but she can't sleep. So you can see her chief complaint there and her past medical history. No drug allergies, so we don't have to worry about that. And then we have her current medication list. So what are your guys' thoughts? I don't think there's one exact right answer, but I think there's some considerations we could take. So 
Anyone have thoughts? Sorry? Wouldn't be a bad thought? No. What are you, and why, what makes you say that? Sorry? Okay. Sedating, so... So we could maybe tell her to just take it at night and see if we can get her a better night's sleep and combine it with rest, and maybe that would help. Good thoughts. What else? What's everybody else thinking? Yeah. You'll have to speak up, though, so I can hear you. Oh, I apologize. So she thought tizanidine because it might help her sleep at night if she took it at night, and it could help with the spasms. Go ahead. So exactly, it might not be a medication, right? We might recommend something else, like what you just said, topicals, so some sort of muscle rub that can help relax the muscles in our low back. Um, did you say heat? Well, yes, it would provide some heat. I'm not a fan of pads. Okay, I just wanted to make sure. So like we mentioned at the beginning, maybe trying an NSAID first and not jumping straight to a muscle relaxer or even, a, like you mentioned, a topical formulation of an NSAID. Uh, I will say that sometimes those topicals get pricey, so it is important to keep in mind um, what we're asking our patients to pay for when we're handing them a prescription. But all of those other things that we might want to think about first before we put her on a medication because... Um, she wants to be able to work. She wants to be able to be awake during the day. She doesn't want her medications to interfere with that. So if we can avoid systemic um, exposure to these medications, that might be her first preference. And then maybe consider doing something just at bedtime. Help her sleep a little bit at night and see if that doesn't help. And again, we would only want to have her on this for a short, if we are going to start a muscle relaxant, shortest amount of time as possible. Think. Anybody else have any different thoughts? I want to give, if you have a thought. Oh, sorry, I apologize. I missed your hand. Please go ahead. I don't have comments on that specifically because I just hadn't prepared for that question today. So I apologize. I don't like to say I don't know, but there is a lot about, you know, soaking in Epsom salt. So is it, yeah. So another adjuvant or another adjunct treatment, right? Have them soak in Epsom salt. Maybe the warmth from the water is going to help relax things a little bit. Then we avoid the potential heating pad issues if someone falls asleep with a heating pad on and burns their back. So yes, I love that everybody's thinking about stuff other than the medications. Go ahead. I apologize. So he mentioned soaking in Epsom salts because there is magnesium in the Epsom salts. So there's a potential for my. Well, I mean, so yes, it would all be, and the big, the big picture here is it's patient specific, right? There's not a one size fits all. There's not a black and white. 
do this for this patient all the time. You know, there's not one right answer, just like any of our other pain management that we do. It's all patient specific. We have to take all of these factors into consideration before we choose the therapy that we're going to use for them. Um, and then I had just one more case. On that patient. I'm sorry? What was your decision on that patient? Um, I would have recommended, I, so I, I like the idea of a muscle relaxant at bedtime. I would probably have definitely avoided cyclobenzaprine just because of how sedating it can be. I would maybe want something with a little bit longer half-life um, so that it would last all night. So if she was having trouble sleeping, so um, maybe something like metaxalone potentially because it has a longer half-life, she might be able to sleep all night and then wake up and not feel so bad. So I would probably avoid the shorter acting muscle relaxants because I wouldn't want it to wear off. Um, and if we got to a point where she would need to take something during the day, I'd want to recommend something that had, the le that had less sedating properties. I'd really want to make sure we try to work with what she wants. I saw a hand, yes. What, what about using Amrix? Sorry? What about using Amrix? Amrix. That's a, that's a time-release flexural medicine that's less sedating. So there's the potential for that. I saw a lot of conflicting information about the extended-release flexural. There's a lot of dosing considerations that have to be thought about. I don't know that I would jump to using extended-release flexural or extended-release cyclobenzaprine as my first line because you want to first make sure they're going to work, right? So I would want to trial something, and if it didn't work, stop and trial something else before we got to an extended release preparation. But it is another option um, out there that if someone does require longer acting medications, you may want to consider that one. So one more, um, we have now an 80 year old male and he's just saying that his whole body hurts and his legs feel tight. He has a history of epilepsy, AFib, um, a stroke five years ago, and fibromyalgia. So um, no, no known drug allergies, and you can see his current medication list there. What are your initial thoughts for him? I, so I heard someone say something. What was it? Yeah, I don't know that I would recommend a muscle relaxer at all. I mean, I just, we have the history of epilepsy, we have AFib, we have fibromyalgia, so we have lots of things that could get worsened. Um, they're 80, so I don't want to make someone that is um, elderly too sedated. I don't want to cause a fall. So for this person, you know, I may want to avoid muscle relaxants altogether. Yes? I'm sorry? Physical therapy would be another great option. So physical therapy, rest, all of our adjunct things, maybe some topical creams. Maybe we need to make sure he's not dehydrated if his legs are hurting. Um, is there something else going on? Is it a flare-up of a disease state that's already there that we don't need to add another medication onto? Maybe we need to maximize the current medication regimen. That's Yes, I'm glad you mentioned that. So up here he mentioned increase the pregabalin dose. Definitely, we could probably increase that a little bit and try to maximize the therapies he already has rather than adding an additional medication. So the whole point of this was to give kind of an overview of the different medications that we have available. 
in our arsenal. Um, emphasize that these medications are only ever supposed to be short-term use. There might always be a, an option that might be better. We don't maybe shouldn't jump straight to a muscle relaxer. Um, it's important to review the side effect profile to make sure we're matching up the medication to the person and not just picking something because we saw someone else do it. Um, and then always following up, you know, asking those follow-up questions to find out if it's working. Because if the patient isn't reporting any benefit from it, then it should be discontinued. We don't want to keep having them tape a, take a medication that's not providing the benefit um, that we're hoping for. And they're not meant to be the only therapy. They're meant to be used with other therapies, with other medications, as kind of a multi-dimensional pain regimen rather than in silos. So I wanted to leave a few minutes at the end. We have about 10 minutes. Um, I know that there is probably a sponsored lunch, so if you guys want to, I, mean, I understand if people want to jump out and get in line for that, but I will hang out in here. Um, this room isn't going to be in use, so if you have questions, please uh, feel free to could raise you, your hand and you ask questions. Could you just address chlorzoxazone real quick, or is that not a muscle relaxant? Sorry? Chlorzoxazone? Um, I didn't address it because I just, I don't see it used all that often anymore, and I kind of wanted to focus on the ones that I see. So if there is something someone would like to add, I am happy for that to be added. I just want to know what your thoughts were on it because, you know, there's the new Lorzone preparation, mm -hmm. and so rather than trying to get that paid for, we've been doing more generic chlorzoxazone, 500 milligrams, so... What's been your, I'm curious to find out, is it, you know, what's been the outcomes? Oh, I think people think it's effective, but I don't know if it's safe or, you know. I think there are some, you know, it would be something that we would need to look into and see what are those, you know, again, side effect profile and just making sure that we're not causing problems for patients. And it's really what they're telling us, right? So if they're experiencing side effects, we would want to make sure we change it. So, yes, please, go ahead. There's a shortage. So there is a shortage of methocarbamol right now. Yes. <laughs> Answers the question. There you go. <laughs> yes. And if you could speak up a little bit or if we could have a microphone for her just so I can hear you. I generally try to taper based on the half-life. So if it has a half-life of about four hours, I know that we're going to have steady state concentrations of the drug after about five half-lives, so about 20 hours. So I decrease the dose generally daily because we have give the drug a chance to get steady state again. The body can readjust. If they don't tolerate daily, then maybe every two days decreasing the dose. Sorry? So just the side effect, uh, not the side effect, the withdrawal symptoms. So people may feel worse, have more flares of it. I think there's been some... Potential, there's some talk about, you know, potentially seizure activity. So just, um, you know, kind of feeling pretty crummy coming off of it if you stop it abruptly. Well, I think it's rare. I think it's just more cautious. You don't want it kind of similar, you know, because it's like GABA. So we don't want to discontinue benzodiazepines abruptly because our bodies get used to them and maybe there's been some down regulation of our own GABA neurotransmitters. So we want to make sure there's time for that to become equaled out again.
No, I think that baclofen is one of them that crosses back and forth. I see it used in both places. And I see tizanidine crossing back and forth as well. And, and so it's just know that it might not work. Like that's, that's the big thing, is it might not work. It's not contraindicated at all. Right. Yes. Oh, no, yeah, and so it's not, it's not contraindicated by any means. I didn't, I hope that that didn't come across, but if it did, I want to correct that. Yeah, and so it's just keeping in mind that it just might not work. So if it doesn't work, what are we, you know, having a backup plan. You're welcome. Yeah, one quick comment. I'll, I'll get to you a second. I promise. I saw your hand. I don't believe that magnesium Epsom baths are contraindicated in diabetes unless there's severe renal impairment. Uh, are you aware of Flexril having any issues with REM sleep in reducing I REM sleep? I didn't see anything, but that doesn't mean that it doesn't. I mean, I can't say a definite yes or no because I didn't. That's okay. I didn't Thanks. see anything, but with as sedating as it is, I don't know. There's, I would think that maybe there's a potential, but I'm not sure. So that's definitely something for me to go home and look into. And I saw it, yes. Okay, Dantrally, I am more confused than a newborn on a top of the seat when it comes to Dantrally. He told us that it, it's essentially acting. I know it's essentially acting. So I think it acts centrally to cause peripheral muscle relaxation is what I've been able to figure out because I'm in the same boat that you're in. I, yeah, I don't get it, but I'm in, I was in the same boat as you and I just had to sit down and think, okay, Jessica, let's think about this. Yeah. And so, but I don't see it used. I've seen it used personally. I've been involved with its use one time and that was to manage a patient that had neuroleptic malignant syndrome. And he, this poor man was just, his whole body was contracting so hard that he was almost falling out of his bed. And so we jumped straight to infuse, you know, a couple of infusions of dantrolene. It calmed him down and it resolved that. I mean, he was one of my hospice patients, so he did eventually um, pass on, but we were able to get him comfortable, so we jumped straight to dantrolene. We didn't even mess with trying anything else, but I would say that it's th those severe cases when I would jump straight to dantrolene. You're welcome. And I'm happy to stick around if anybody has any other questions. Thank you guys for sticking.